Right now on Amplified, the Engineers Journal podcast, we're about to meet senior consultant at RPS Group, Jerry Carty. What kind of person makes an engineer? I think a person who is motivated to do good, basically. I don't think there's a, a stereotype. The one thing you can't do in engineering is book the trend or the curve. So engineering relies upon learning from what you've done and doing it better. There are always innovative solutions, but there are also basket case solutions. So having learned a lot through experience, using that experience well is, is a very important part of an engineer's development. Hello, my name is Dusty Rhodes and you're welcome to Amplified, the Engineer's Journal podcast, where today we're chatting with the senior consultant at RPS Group, a professional services firm of 5,000 consultants and service providers operating in 125 countries globally. A chartered engineer, he has worked as an engineer, environmental consultant, regulator and director. And today he'll be sharing some of his 38 years of very significant experience in the industry. It's a pleasure to welcome Jerry Carty. Jerry, how are you? Very well, Dusty. Thank you. So, Jerry, uh, what hit you to become an engineer when you were a kid? Were you a little 10-year-old going, I want to do that? Or did you find the light later in life? I think I, I discovered I wanted to be an engineer around my fifth year in, in secondary school. I grew up on a small farm and uh, typical of a, a West of Ireland family, uh, nobody had gone to college. I got interested in social issues and uh, saw this course advertised for UIG at the time, which was called Industrial Engineering, but it was actually not Industrial Engineering as it was sold and marketed. It was more of a social engineering, looking at communities and looking at uh, how to improve society. And I suppose the motivation was uh, to do a course like that, which um, would help me contribute towards probably the betterment of, of society. And that was a I suppose, a laudable ambition at the time. It didn't quite turn out that way. Well, now, I'd argue with you there. I think you've had a, a very illustrious career, which we'll uh, go over a, a few of the highlights. Tell me about RPS, though, firstly, because it's a very sizable group. I said it's 5,000 people, 125 countries. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the Irish operation. Sitting in Ireland, we have five main offices, Dublin, Cork, Galway. We have an office in Sligo and another office in Belfast. And... We provide a, what I call integrated engineering and environmental services that includes planning, it includes communication. So it involves taking projects from a concept, as in somebody said, well, we think we might like to do something, um, developing that for them, developing uh, out the kind of concept into a business plan or into a feasibility stage. And then taking it through from there, right through the whole process of getting planning approvals, which can be a very lengthy process and difficult process, through to tendering, uh, selecting a contractor, managing the construction after, i.e. the maintenance period, and then in, right into operation. So our, our services span the full range of activities. We employ engineers, we employ planners, we employ scientists, communication specialists, if, if you have a skill of any kind, we practically employ people from <laughs> multi-backgrounds. Multi and interestingly, in recent years, 
there has been a, a huge downturn in numbers going into engineering courses across Ireland. So our range of specialists now includes maths graduates, physics graduates, people from multiple backgrounds who can very easily adapt to the engineering world and the digital world that we're in. And what kind of jobs would the company be known for, recent stuff that you've done? So starting in in Dublin, the extension of Dublin Airport Terminal 1 would have been quite a significant project uh, in the Celtic Tiger era. Probably the, the range of projects we're best known for is the development of the National Motorway Network. So Back in the late 90s, uh, a study was done called the National Roads Needs Study, which was basically a framework for the development of roads and motorways nationally. And, and the government of the day decided to go with the motorway network. We completed the first connection, which was the Galway, the West Coast to, to Dublin back in 2009. So roads projects all over the country, including roads projects in Scotland uh, and, and the UK. We have done things like the upgrading uh, of the Ballymore Eustace Water Treatment Plant, which is the principal water treatment plant serving the city of Dublin. Uh, we have done the gas pipeline to the west, which was the expansion of the network from when it was uh, largely Dublin-centric to the west coast and down to Limerick, which has facilitated the connection, for example, of, of the Corrib gas field, which is another project we did, uh, hugely controversial at the time but actually hugely beneficial to the economy and, and to the nation now as a, as, as a source of energy. Why was it controversial? Uh, it, it was controversial for a number of reasons. I think one of them was that it was initially promoted by a relatively small company and they got into difficulties at the planning stage. Um, perhaps, you know, in hindsight, they didn't have the resources sufficient to deliver a major project. And... That meant that uh, they wanted to proceed, but perhaps were not in a position to invest as much as they should. They selected a site to come on shore. They applied for planning. They were refused planning. It was taken over then by, by Shell. And at that point in time, um, we were appointed and had to seek uh, a whole new planning for the project, etc. Uh, but there were certain constraints uh, on, on the project at that, by that time. What were they? No, there were things like uh, where we could come ashore, prior work had had identified particular locations and, you know, various issues then arose in terms of the pressure of the gas in the pipeline, its proximity to housing. All of these are reasonable concerns. Um, we, we do specialist advice and, and assistance and we worked our way through all of those issues uh, Took quite a number of years, took quite a lot of liaison with the local community. But eventually in 2016-17, the project was completed. Uh, but that was about 17 years from commencement of the process to completion. And that, that wouldn't be untypical of what's now happening nationally on major projects today. So if, if you are approaching a project and it is controversial in nature or are there people who are very, very against the project, what kind of course of action would you advise to take? Well, our, our approach is always to be as open and transparent as possible. Um, you know, if you are intending to develop something um, and it has an impact on people and on an area or region, set out what you intend to do. Set it out clearly communicate it clearly, engage with the public. Now, 
generally, there is wide acceptance of something that is perceived to be of benefit at that very early stage. Where issues often arise is you get to the selection stage where you're looking at two or three options. And then the lobby groups decide that they do not want... It's, it's, it's like housing currently. A lot of the objections to housing come from people who already have houses and often good quality houses in the vicinity of where a development is needed, desirable, perhaps even necessary because it's well serviced by public services. Uh, but they see the opportunity to object and uh, there is an objection culture out there. It is very rare to see proponents of a project or infrastructure getting positive publicity on a regular basis. The media do look for the controversy and they look for a controversial angle and they will cover that because that generates uh, interest and publicity. So you think that a good way to tackle that is to be open, give information, make it accessible to people, but not to get too detailed because you need the flexibility to be able to reach a compromise. Exactly. The objective is to find the best solution or the optimum solution. It's not to find the only solution. There is always more than one solution. We do a lot of what I would call public infrastructure, which is infrastructure of benefit to society. And it's very interesting that people think in terms of the short term, generally in Ireland, rather than the long term. The long term you know, infrastructure that we would deliver, the typical planning period should be somewhere between about 25 and 100 years, depending on what you're building. Now, how many people actually are willing to think forward? For example, Ireland is due to have a population of around 8 million by 2040. And that's the figure in the national plan. Break that down into the increase that's going to be needed in our major towns and cities where most of those people will be housed. And you can guarantee that, uh, so for example, one of the objectives of that plan or framework is to have balanced regional development. That would mean massive population increases in the designated cities such as Limerick, Sligo, Waterford, Cork. It means a level of planning which is not your local increase. It means doubling the population of some of those locations. But that level of planning is required if we are to have a well-serviced, functioning infrastructure that meets the needs of our society by 2040 to 2060. Um, and there's no getting away from that. And people will, people do have great difficulty understanding that. But yes, it is an absolute necessity for society. Otherwise, we will end up in chaos. And one of the big things that's, positive things that's happening at the moment is the review of planning legislation because our planning system has, has descended into an almost endless cycle of objections, court cases and uh, judicial reviews, basically. You say you're planning for 25, 50, 100 years into the future. When you first started working on the Galway Dublin motorway project, I mean, you were kind of newish in the game. Would that be fair to say? Uh, it would be very ish, fair to ish. say. Ish. <laughs> it, would be, it, it would be fair to say. Uh, it, so, well, yeah. what I was going to ask was, I mean, you, you have an awful lot of experience and, you, and you've given very sage insight but when you were working on the uh, Dublin-Galway uh, motorway, that, that was kind of all new to you. What lessons did you learn from that that you would apply to that long-term planning? Well, to give, to give you an idea, the appointment to work on that project happened around the turn of the era, so around 2000. 
by 2004, we had got it to the stage where we were going into an oral hearing to get the route approved. So the selection process had, had largely been completed and it was waiting the confirmation by Onboard Planola. That got approved in 2005, started construction in 2007 and was opened in 2009. So that's less than a 10-year cycle. And that probably is reasonably acceptable for a large project. If I was to do a comparison of a project today uh, and take the Galway Ring Road as a comparison, it started life earlier. It's still in the courts 23 years later. That's the practical difficulties that are occurring in Ireland today. Uh, Other projects, uh, other major infrastructure would be hitting similar bottlenecks. So the planning system was amended back in 2000. There was a new Planning and Development Act. In fact, over the last 20 years, the planning process has become so complicated and difficult that the time periods to get a project like the Galway at loan through the system are now double to triple the time it it took 10, 15 years ago. In other jurisdictions, the timeline required is far shorter. The opportunities to uh, contribute exist at particular stages. They're within defined time limits. They deal with the issues in a very practical way and therefore they get their projects and the necessary developments through the system. And nobody is suggesting that we should have undesirable developments uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, we largely uh, work, as I say, on national level infrastructure. I think there are very few, if any, projects we have ever worked on that ultimately are not built. And they're they're proposed for a reason. They're not speculative. They're not geared towards just generating a big return for an investor. They are there for the public good. They are there to serve the people of the country. And I think that's the gap in understanding is that the modern era people uh, and psychologists will say this have, have a very short term horizon as in what's in it for me in the next six months or next year? How do I benefit from it? Uh, will this inconvenience me in any way as distinct from how will it assist us? So even if this was, for example, putting in a bus lane on a local road, guaranteed it will be objected. Even if the demand is there on that road for better public services, for a regular timetable, etc. So it's 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 a cultural issue as well as a political issue, but certainly um, more effort needs to go into communicating the positive benefits of doing things right, doing them well and doing them for the right reason, particularly on large infrastructure, particularly on public projects. You know, for example, the metro in Dublin has been proposed for many, many years. A city like Dublin ultimately we'll have to have a metro if it continues to grow. There isn't only one solution. There is the solution that is on the table at the moment, which is will make its way through the process. It would be an interesting exercise to see how long it actually takes to get through the current process or if the uh, amendments that the government are now proposing to the Planning Acts, whether it would be possible to process them in a shorter timeline. But looking at the current planning process, that project could be in the planning process for the next 10 years. You were talking a lot from a civil engineer's point of view and objections from various different bodies, but you've also worn the hat 
as a regulator because you did some time with uh, did some time. I don't mean it that way, but you were with the Environmental Protection Agency for a number of years. Was that kind of like going from poacher to to gatekeeper? Or it's, it's different hats completely, isn't it? It's different hats completely. Um, the end of '93, I was at a point in my career where. Um, I had worked in a company, uh, a number of companies. I had done some overseas work and uh, a brand new organisation, the Environmental Protection Agency was being set up. And uh, I saw it as an opportunity to do, I suppose, what I, I felt motivated to do, which was help improve society to some degree, what I would have thought when I went to um, college originally. The EPA was being set up. There were a lot of environmental issues in Ireland at the time. There were more controversies about dumps and waste and pollution of rivers than almost anything else. And they were top of the political agenda at the time. I was offered a senior position. I took it and I was one of the first people in the door. So over the next couple of years, it was a very exciting time. The EPA is independent of of government. Uh, it has independent decision-making powers. And, you know, at the time, uh, the whole licensing of major industry, the licensing of local authority landfills and other waste facilities, all of these issues were introduced in that mid-90s to 2000 period. And, you know, you can see the benefits of that today um, in in terms of overall society because... There is now very little controversy or argument around the performance or the regulation of major industries and equally the whole blight on the countryside of dumps and landfills was resolved within about a 10-year period. Uh, Now, one of the big controversial projects at the time was the proposal to build an incinerator in Poolbeg. Dublin's waste was being dumped, literally, in the counties adjacent to Dublin. Uh, and that caused a huge amount of pollution. One of the projects that was proposed fairly early on uh, and licensed by the EPA was the um, Poolbeg Incinerator. And as we know, that probably was the most controversial project in the country over about a 10-year period. And again, why was it controversial? It was controversial because um, people in the area of Sandy Mountain, Rings End, where it was going, did not want a facility in the location. Ironically, for a Green Party, all Green Parties in Europe supported incineration and, and the use of energy, of waste to generate energy, but the Green Party in Ireland decided that it was against it. Uh, for several years, the Minister for the Environment was a, a Green Party representative. So various reasons, but it, it was a big project. It was hugely needed. It's been hugely successful. Was the worry that it would be billowing the smoke? But smoke is not the issue. It's actually the content of what would be released. It would be the substances that would be contained in it. Invisible gases that you can't see. Yes. So, I mean, why put something into the ground that's going to pollute it for the next 500 years when you can burn it, generate energy and control the content or substances in the emissions? Is that possible? Is that Was that the solution? That, that, well, it has been the solution. How much controversy has there been over its operation since it went into place five years ago, six years ago? I haven't heard very much and I, I don't see any coverage of it. I mean, 
there have been a couple of issues around whether it's it had it might have had short term issues um, at particular times, but in general, as a facility for the national capital, it was absolutely essential that it be developed. It's operated by a private sector operator. Some would see that as good. Some would not see that as good. I don't think that's the relevant point. The relevant point is a facility of that nature was clearly needed. It ultimately got developed, but it took 20 years from concept through to actual delivery, but hugely opposed and vehemently opposed over a long period of time. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with people putting up their point of view and, and arguing, but there's a point at which you have to reconcile facts and supposition <laughs> and rumour. And uh, we're always in that game. We, 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 we employ quite a lot of communications people and they're experts in the area. And, and it is ultimately a case of people understanding. I think a lack of understanding is at the root of a lot of opposition. And, you know, if the, if the message or the factual information is distorted and there is a tendency in modern social media with the channels available to absolutely distort the information. And, and uh, uh, we, we see that currently where, you know, factual information, good quality information is put up there. It's deliberately misinterpreted, deliberately misquoted. It is deliberately circulated without control. That generates fear. It generates opposition. It agitates people and irritates people. So it, it, it doesn't serve any positive purpose other than a negative purpose of, of heightening people's stress and tension. And that largely does not come from those in responsible positions. It comes from, from uh, people who do not want something in their vicinity or even within... Ireland, even people overseas, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. But the one, the one key word that you said that does help everybody is information. Absolutely. And making it available. Now, from a negative side of things to a positive side of things, uh, RPS was named, uh, on the same topic, RPS was named as one of the first ever carbon champions by the Institution of Civil Engineers. Which, which one of the projects uh, was involved in that? That's a, an overseas project. It's it's called GIA. It's Glasgow Industrial Investment Area. It's adjacent to Glasgow Airport. It's a site that was contaminated and had to be remediated. And uh, the Scottish government designated for development of new industry. We were employed by the contractor who was appointed to design uh the civil and other infrastructure for the site. And one of the issues that arose on the site was there was a an old oil-cooled high-voltage transmission cable running through the site. And this cable required cooling, which is why the heavy oil was there. Power transmission cables buried underground need to be cooled. So in removing the contamination and developing the site, this existing cable was top priority to protect it because it served uh, much of the electricity needs of Glasgow. We came up with a, a very unique solution, um, which was rather than concrete, the complete cable was to build what I call crib work using uh, what would be described as plastics, but plastic box type components using uh, high quality engineering methods then to construct that around the cables 
and avoid the using of concrete. And the benefit of that was that the concrete, if used, would have had a huge carbon footprint, whereas the alternative had almost a zero carbon footprint. So one of our staff, a senior geotechnical engineer, Keen McGuinness, uh, won the award for ICE champion. And we've placed a huge emphasis on projects where we can reduce carbon over the last seven or eight years. Um, we have developed our own sustainability team, uh, an approach to knit carbon zero, where we, we, we incorporate it at every stage of our design process. We've trained every staff member within the company in terms of it. And uh, just recently, uh, Engineers Ireland awarded that particular project uh, the annual award for excellence for digital innovation also. So um, Knit Carbon Zero is a huge way to tackle carbon emissions, particularly in our area, we're in infrastructure. Can we reduce the carbon content that is embodied in the materials? Can we reduce the carbon content during use of the facility afterwards. Um, that might be developing alternative heating compared to oil burning or fossil fuel use, etc. So we place a, a significant emphasis on that at all stages of our project development now. It, it's great to see it recognised and it was great to see Keen recognised for, for the outstanding work in the area. Uh, and we continue to do that. So when we are doing projects now, we, we look right through the project cycle from concept to completion, what materials are available. So for example, can we use timber, which is locally grown or sustainable and replaceable versus using steel? Can we use alternatives to concrete um, in terms of paving? Are there new or alternative substances available? to replace traditional asphalt or, or similar materials. So it's been a huge emphasis for the last couple of years uh, and we continue, we, we, we intend to continue down that route. So certainly clients are looking for it and it's now become a demand uh, nationally under the Climate Change Action Plan where project savings must be illustrated. We're in a changing world at the moment. And as you say, that project was in Glasgow. You're doing quite a bit of overseas work and at quite a distance as well. Like that is a challenge working on something that is thousands of miles away. How do you, how do you handle it? Hopefully we do it well. <laughs> we do, that's, a, is, that's a given, Jerry. That's a given. <laughs> what's really facilitated it, ironic to say, but COVID, COVID was the generator of being able to work uh, remotely anywhere in the world. So when COVID hit in, in March 2020, within a couple of weeks, we had all of our staff working from home. Most staff had laptops. We had a proportion working from home part-time or full-time. But suddenly we had to go from everybody or close to everybody in the office to nobody in the office. And business impacts potentially could have been huge. Uh, our IT people did a fantastic job. We got up and running. And then we were working with our colleagues in places like Australia and the US at the time doing some infrastructure. We were developing our digital and digitalization capacity in parallel for quite a number of years. And we we had a, a national leader, Mark Costello, in our business in Galway. And over time, he and his team began to develop uh, technical solutions to how do you uh, deal with issues. So for example, on, on uh, planning, typically 
people look at two-dimensional drawings and they see something, but they may not understand the height or the impact of it or how it might look from their house or what it might look like in five, ten years. So suddenly with 3D digital design, our team could actually illustrate and do a, a virtual show. So it would be basically... We can give you a tour of something that we have as as a concept. We can show you what it would look like, what height it would be, what it would look like from your window or what impact it will have, you know, as the landscape matures, etc. I don't know if you've heard the term digital twin, but the concept of a digital twin um, became rooted very quickly. So a digital twin is basically a digital model where you can do live walkthroughs or uh, run-throughs as if the project actually existed, uh, as if the building or the road. So one I'm thinking of is we did a project in Cork, uh, the extension of the Cork to Ring a Skiddy Motorway, the M28. And we did visualizations for that, which showed what it would look like, what, it, what so you could actually drive a vehicle down this yet-to-be-constructed road um, you could see where you could turn off. You could look out from your house and see what it looked like now, what it do- would look like when it was constructed, when it would look like in 20, 30 years' time. But all of this capacity was developed in-house um, with the assistance of, of big IT companies, external providers. And that enabled us then to let others in RPS in the various countries around the world know the capacity and that then resulted in some very prestigious projects. Um, so taking not just future projects, but taking ex- existing projects uh, and doing very detailed surveys, then turning that into a model and illustrating uh, it for for people. So I'll give you two examples. Um, Sydney Opera House is one. So the Sydney Opera House Plaza, we model that for the Australians. So how do you walk around uh it currently, how could you enhance it? What could you do to develop it? If you implemented your proposed solutions, what would it look like, etc.? So that was one. A second pro- project that I was going to mention was Houston, uh, which is a city of about 8 million in the US. We've been involved in a number of infrastructure projects there. And because of our digital capacity, we were asked to model what I would call the multimodal, intermodal connections between rail, metro, roads, cycleways, pedestrian ways, etc. And that that modelling has been continuing over a lengthy period of about three, four years at this stage. But it's interesting that we are we have the technology and the technical capability and the people who can deliver that type of um, strategic overview. I mean, if you're trying to tell somebody what... Uh, a new motorway through the middle of a city at an elevation of about 50, 60 metres over ground and a new railway line crossing under it looks like. It's not that easy to understand the concepts when you see them on on a paper drawing. You actually get a real appreciation of them and the level of detail that you can do in these models is fascinating. I mean, we can take a project now and model every stage of the project from early commencement through to completion of construction if the information is available. So depending on the level of information available. So 
on, on construction projects nowadays, um, sometimes there is demand to understand how the process works and how it can be made more efficient. And the whole industry needs to modernize and, and become more efficient. And one way of doing that is to understand how you get from uh, something on a drawing to actually construction, to actual use. And if you do the digital model, you can save potentially a significant amount of material and you can get a better in product. And you can also uh, use what I would call modern methods of construction, um, prefabricate off-site, etc. in a controlled environment, which means you have less construction impacts which also means you can construct the project quicker and uh, to a better quality. So digital is no doubt making a massive difference to the way everything is planned and being able to coordinate and giving information to people who would have concerns about it. And I believe you're able to meld real life footage with the intended project uh, that you are planning and to do that all in 3D these days as well, which is just mind blowing. 2035 seems to be a big year. I hear it over and over again. 2035, this, that, and the other. It's a little over 10 years away. It's going to be a watershed year for everybody. Um, for example, it, in 2035, combustion engines will stop being sold in the EU. That's it. All electric from there on. Uh, what issues do you consider will be important over the next 10 years leading up to 2035? Well, an, an area that we are hugely involved in now is the whole area of renewables and finding alternatives. I mean, if you look at climate change, largely driven by emissions, how do you reduce emissions? Uh, one of the clear ways is reduce the use of fossil fuels and dependency on them. So developing renewables is absolutely key to that. Now, if you take that in Ireland's context, very significant onshore wind development in the last 20 years. At one point in November, 60% of our electricity uh, on particular days came from renewables, which is fantastic. But there are significant developments now proposed offshore. So we're quite involved in developing the concepts, preparing the planning applications, doing the environmental assessments and studies necessary to get permission for those. So finding and implementing firstly renewable energy solutions is absolute key and Ireland as one of the world's leading economies and with a very high standard of living needs to show examples of how it can be done to others. Within the country I think one of the biggest challenges is to be energy efficient and that for example in terms of vehicles when you say a zero um, fossil fuel use in vehicles in 2035. It's a fantastic ambition. But uh, we are now 2023. There is little or no infrastructure that would service electric vehicles around the country. I had the experience of traveling with a friend of mine uh, recently on about a 220 kilometer journey and he spent about four hours searching for a charging point that was vacant so he could charge his car to do the return journey. That just isn't acceptable if we are going to go down the route of having alternatives. So much like broadband needs to be rolled out nationally, uh, motorways needs to be rolled out nationally, the national infrastructure for electric vehicles needs to be rolled out. It's a clear gap in the infrastructure of the country at the moment. If by 2030 we have made significant progress we might get somewhere towards having alternative fuels or alternative energy sources in use and transport within 
another 15, 20 years. But right now, there's no prospect of achieving no carbon vehicles by um, by 2035. They sim- the infrastructure simply hasn't been planned. It's not been implemented. And the national plan just isn't there for it. I, th- I think the plan is that they're going to stop selling the cars in 2035 and then over the next 10, 15 years after that, they will eventually just fade out. And I suppose that gives them the impetus then to put the infrastructure into play. That looks, listen, I'm not an engineer. I don't know what the grand plan is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, uh, look, yeah. Every, every contribution is welcome. Um, a second one would be our building stock, refurbishing it, absolutely essential. It's moving in the right direction. It needs to move an awful lot faster. But when people talk about things like this in Ireland, we need to realise that we are a wealthy country relative to other countries. We have a high, already have a high standard of living. And if we can't afford to go down this route, who can? So, you know, uh, the positive part is that Irish people have a fantastic can-do attitude. As long as the, the government support and the national approach is there to support it, the contractors necessary uh, will be there. We have nearly full employment, but we have a lot of people coming into the country looking for work and a lot of people wanting to return. And uh, you know, once they see continuity of employment, uh, they will work in these areas. Jerry, you've had an amazing career and you've seen so many brilliant things and so, so many developments over the years. And a lot of what you're talking about is just indicating that these amazing things and these amazing developments are just going to continue for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, certainly. You also mentioned that there is a shortage of new people coming into the business. So how do you kind of pitch engineering as an opportunity for people as a job? We look at it as not just, I mean, the traditional engineer had a calculator, sat down with a slide rule and worked out figures, handed them to someone else and they got on with doing it. The modern engineer is somebody who sits at a laptop or similar. As much of their skill is working with others as it is numerical. There is a huge variety of opportunities in, I wouldn't say just engineering, in infrastructure generally, in the construction industry. And part of the attraction is that almost every time we do a project, It's a new project. There's something different. We don't produce widgets. We learn from our experience. We learn, hopefully, positive lessons. There are lots of lessons that we learn. In fact, it is fair to say that as an engineer, and I would say this in my own career, I've learned a lot more from my failures than I have from my successes. And everybody has has it has failures at some point and learning to cope with and learn from them. So one of the things we do internally is We have a very detailed lessons learned database. And if you go on that internally and you're a member of staff, you'll see some of the things we have done that didn't work that well, which we are, which um, typically a lesson learned is here's how we did something. Here's what we did. That went wrong. How did we correct it? What do we do next? So if you like a challenging environment, then there are endless opportunities in engineering. They are now more um, technology driven. Than ever. I mean, when I started, uh, an engineering or design office was an office with a few. We didn't even have calculators. I think largely at the time, there certainly were no PCs. Nowadays, it is driven by an entirely different skill set. So the numerical skill set is still important, but it's actually the ability to communicate, interact, understand, work with other people, 
work in work with integrated teams, work and and build teams, and that brings very interesting challenges. And the challenges, you know, in our business, the challenges are multifaceted. In that, you could be working today on a roads project. In a year's time, you might have transferred to a, a team constructing a project and on site you you need your knowledge but you need a different skill set um you need to know about contracts you need to know about so it's the variety of work i think it, it is one part of it it's the mix of um challenge and you know everybody has skills but if you can find the niche where your skills are useful and you enjoy it i think that's the key and what we want is people working with us who enjoy what they do who enjoy their day-to-day activity. We don't want people in the office late in the evening or working at home late in the evening. We want them to do their day's work, enjoy it, feel fulfilled, uh, feel motivated to do a good job. We had a saying in the office here a number of years ago, which has served us very well, which is, if you work here, leave your ego outside the door. If you want to work here, leave your ego at the door. I totally love that phrase. That can be employed in so many ways. Jerry Carty, Senior Consultant of RPS Group. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Dusty. I enjoyed that. If you'd like to find out more about what we spoke about on the podcast today, you'll find notes and link details in the show notes or description area of our podcast on your podcast player right now. And of course, you'll find more information and advanced episodes on our website at engineersireland.ie. Our podcast today was produced by dustpod.io for Engineers Ireland. And if you'd like more episodes, do click the follow button on the podcast player so you get access to all our past and future shows automatically. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thank you for listening.